follow-ups to our motor vehicle accidents episode. Uh-oh. Trevor Phillips. Good guy. Good guy. Prints our t-shirts. Mm-hmm. Amongst other things. I'm uh, sure that's not the only thing he does with his life. No. <laughs> that's it. We keep him, we keep him uh, tied up in the basement. Uh-huh. It may be important to our listeners, though. Okay. For those who uh, have purchased or are interested in the future in purchasing a Caustic Soda t-shirt, printed, hand-printed by Trevor Phillips, who was recently in a uh, car accident. Uh, I'm assuming uh, he didn't land in a, in a bed of goose down and flowers. He got hit by the truck full of pillows and crashed into the marshmallow factory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, actually, he was standing on a street corner in here in Vancouver, B.C. on September 1st. And two cars in front of him collided, and one of them uh, basically rebounded into him. Careened out of control. Careened out of control. Good turn of phrase. Uh-huh. And smashed him into a building. Yeah. Yeah. So Trevor was in critical condition for a while. He was just released from hospital as I'm recording this. But I have set up a Indiegogo fundraiser campaign for Trevor. Uh, so if you just go to Indiegogo and type in uh, Palooza, which is what I'm calling it. Mm-hmm. That'll come up for you. And we'll put a link on Costco Soda Podcast as well. Of course. And uh, we're encouraging all our listeners to donate to help uh, Trevor, uh, since he owns a small business, and that's his, uh, that's his main source of income, I believe. He, uh, he could use some extra bucks, him and his wife. And to, during the uh, recovery, the long road of recovery. But this isn't just for to. karma points or anything like this. You've actually got some very real things that you can receive in exchange for your donation. Yeah, you know, a lot of people have been bugging me to release the uh, acapella songs that I've been recording for Caustic Soda. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'll get around to that. Uh, well, now I've set a date. Uh-huh. Uh, those of you who want to go to the Healapalooza can donate to the $24, and you will get an advanced copy of my solo album, quote-unquote. Uh-huh. The Torin Atkinson Acapella Project. Yeah, and that'll be um, the music that many people have been pining for. And you'll help out a great guy in Trevor at the same time. Exactly. There's also perks from Sword of the Stars, The Pit, and there's tickets to Improv Against Humanity in Vancouver, and uh, you should go and check it out and help Trevor. We know where the bodies are, more or less. I'm Kevin Leeson. We left the baby with the Makins. Now he's a Horus of a different color. I'm Torin Atkinson. Today we're discussing dimanic duos. I'm Joe Fulgham, and this is Caustic Soda! Trigger alert. Trigger alert. This podcast contains discussion about rape. Copy yeah. that. Ugh. Evil, evil duos in history. history. It's our first evil duos. In stereo. So what exactly is an evil duo? Like, what are we going to be talking about? Which word episode? do you not understand? Evil. Well, okay. evil comes from Old English evil, Ooh. which means bad, vicious, ill, or wicked. From proto-Germanic ubalaz. Dude, that is so evil. 
from pre-Indo-European upello from the root wop from oh. Hittite, huop. Okay. Uh, so it's a long chain of events so, that don't make any sense so to me. So we've Huop, known about evil for a long upello, ubelaz, evil. Evil and then evil. So we've had a word for evil for a very long time. Since at least the Hittites. Right. And duo comes from Latin, meaning two. Exactly. What do we mean by that for the purposes of this episode for our listeners? We're going to talk about a pair of uh, people. Ah, so A pair got... of evil people who work together. Just one pair? Or are we going to duo this We're duos? Gonna, the first half will be one pair. The second half will be another pair. A duo of duos. A duo of duos. A quadro. Oh, my goodness. If that's a word. And then at the end, we'll have a duel of the duo A duel of duos. of duos. Yeah. Who's more evil? That sort of thing. We'll have uh-huh. a duel of our duo of duos. So this is a splinter from our Evil Dudes and Evil Dames series. I love it. First off, I'm going to start with 1963 to 1965, Myra Hindley and Ian Brady. So an unmarried couple? Yes. Or brother and sister? Half brother, uh, half sister. A couple. This is the Moors murders. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where's the Moors? So Othello was involved somehow? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I didn't read that one. Othello was a Moor in uh, Shakespeare's. Oh, okay. He didn't live on the Moors. Uh-huh. Moors. <laughs> uh, so named because some victims were discovered in graves dug on Saddleworth Moor. These were carried out between 1963 and 1965 near Manchester, England, by Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. Mm-hmm. Quick backgrounds for these two uh, characters. Mm-hmm. These two lovely people, obviously. Yeah. Ian Brady, as a young child, took pleasure in torturing animals. He broke the hind legs of one dog, set fire to another, and decapitated a cat. That's never a hallmark of somebody who's going to have later troubles a in life. A compassionate, empathic person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then let me guess how this story turns out. He goes on to help the poor and the needy. <laughs> I don't want to spoil the ending. Okay. It's all right. Soon. Sorry. I'm so sorry. He had several run-ins with authorities throughout his young adult years. Myra Hindley, her mother and alcoholic father, beat her regularly as a young child. When Hindley was aged eight, a low... And- Wait, like at board games or something? Yeah. Beats. Like Monopoly? Yeah. That, what cruel bastard. They, they beat you landed at Park Place, you owe me a lot of money, You're idiot. You're supposed to let your kids win when you play games, right? Yeah, Teach I them know. that they're special and they're... life is always fair. These people were monsters. Uh, when Hindley was aged eight, a local boy approached her in the street and scratched both of her cheeks with his fingernails, drawing blood. She burst into tears and ran into her parents' house to be met by her father, who demanded that she go and punch him because if you don't, I'll leather you. So a boy scratches her, yep. she cries, and yep. her dad says, you need to go back out there and punch that kid in the face, yep. otherwise I will beat you again. Yes. Hindley found the boy and succeeded in knocking him down with a sequence of punches as her father had taught her. By practicing on her. I so actually, probably, yeah. the beatings were a life lesson in yeah. his eyes. He, here's how you hit people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you could uh, teach that a little friendlier. More constructively, perhaps? Yeah. Hey, you teach your way, he'll teach his way. Apparently. One of her close, and then you'll end up with uh, murder. That's right. (laughs) One of her closest friends was 13-year-old Michael Higgins. He invited her to go swimming with with friends at a local disused reservoir. A good swimmer. Hindley chose not to go and instead went out with another friend. Higgins drowned in the reservoir, and upon learning of his fate, Hindley was deeply upset and blamed herself for his death. Oh, Okay. So she actually has the capacity to feel emotion. Yeah, that's, that's not evil. That's a not evil thing. That I was right. a not yeah. evil moment. Yeah. That was a flash in the not evil pan. So the two of them worked together in an office in 1961. Myra became infatuated with Ian despite learning he had a criminal record. Wait, what kind of office are these two working in? Is it a slaughterhouse office? A dog torturing office? 
Like, how do these guys get hired? How does Ian Brady get hired? It was like a, just a boring old office where they did administration. You know, type yeah, my question sales. was my yeah. question was more rhetorical. Ooh, insurance. Oh, it's, I don't know. Probably. I'm imagining paper sales like The Office. Uh, uh, so th- this was the Jim and Pam couple. Will they get together? Yes, they did. And then they killed some people. All right. So it just one of those industries where it helps if you're a sociopath, perhaps. On their first date, they watched Judgment at Nuremberg, an excellent movie. First date choice, though. Yeah. Wow. This is kind of like taking out a taxi driver where De Niro took, yeah. uh, uh, what's her name, to go see a porno. Well, their dates together followed a regular pattern, a trip to the cinema, usually to watch an X-rated film. Uh-huh. Uh, and then back to Hindley's house to drink wine. Brady gave her reading material, and the pair spent the, their work lunch breaks reading aloud to one another from accounts of Nazi atrocities. Oh, <laughs> Isn't that sweet? It's heartwarming. Uh, Hindley began to emulate an ideal of Aryan perfection, bleaching her hair blonde and applying thick crimson lipstick. And I just, oh. yeah, I got to say, like, uh, I don't really want to make fun of somebody for their f- actual physical appearance that they can't help. But if she was to be portrayed by any actor currently living, it would be Stephen Fry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, interesting, interesting. Uh, so they were um, slowly but surely becoming neo-Nazis? Is that what I'm getting from this? I think they just kind of had a, an interest. Well, right. Okay, so they were enthusiasts. Yeah. Uh-huh. Hindley claimed that Brady began to talk about committing the perfect murder and often spoke to her about the novel Meyer Levin's Compulsion, a fictionalized account of the Leopold and Loeb case callback to the perfect murder episode of Caustic Soda. Mm. Way back in season one. Uh, we're going to skip to the first victim, Pauline Reed. Okay. This was in 1963, mm-hmm. July. Brady told Hindley he wanted to commit the perfect murder. He told her to drive her van around the local area while he followed behind on his motorcycle. When he spotted a likely victim, he would flash his headlight, and Hindley was supposed to stop and offer the person a, a ride. Oh, so she was the lure. Right. Mm-hmm. Right, because Brady knew better than to offer him offering rides to young women on the side of the road. Probably not, not as successful a uh, successful uh, a rate. plan. Yeah, yeah. Right? Take a look at him. The guy oozes creepiness. He. You can go to our website, causticsodapodcast.com, to check out the headshots. After one or two unsuccessful attempts, Brady spotted a girl and signaled to Myra, and she picked up 16-year-old Pauline Reed, who she recognized as a friend of her sister. Hindley asked if she would mind helping to search for an expensive glove she had lost on Saddleworth Moor. Reed said she was in no great hurry and agreed. Okay. So, uh, a good Samaritan. When the van reached the moor, Hindley stopped and Brady arrived shortly afterwards on his motorcycle. She introduced him to Reed as her boyfriend and said that she that he had also come to help find the missing glove. Brady took Reed onto the moor while Hindley waited in the van. After about 30 minutes, Brady returned alone and took Hindley to the spot where Reed lay dying, her throat cut. He told her to stay with Reed while he fetched a spade he had hidden nearby. To bury the body. Hindley noticed that Pauline's coat was undone and her clothes were in disarray. She had guessed from the time he had taken that Brady had sexually assaulted her. Returning home from the moor in the van, Brady and Hindley passed Reed's mother, Joan, accompanied by her son, Paul, searching the streets for Pauline. Oh, wow. Oh, nice. So they saw the family. They must have gotten some real perverse joy out of that. So Paul and Pauline are the kids. Yeah. Who names their kid the same name? Basically, probably a lot you know of what? people, actually. What do, you, what do you name the third kid? Paulette. Oh, or Paolo. Ah, Paolo. go a little foreign. Not very likely in 1963 UK, oh, but... Right. Uh, Might happen. Ooh, Paul Paul. <laughs> Moving ahead to four months later, 23rd November 1963, 
Hindley approached 12-year-old John Kilbride at a market and asked him to help her carry some boxes. Brady was sitting in the back of a rental car. When they reached the moor, Brady took the child with him while Hindley waited in the car. Brady sexually assaulted Kilbride and attempted to slit his throat with a six-inch serrated blade before fatally strangling him with a piece of string, possibly a shoelace. So he will sexually assault anybody and anything, evidently. Well, doesn't anybody. have a proclivity. There's no... There's, I don't think if you sexually assault an inanimate object, I don't think it counts as sexual assault. Uh, I, I Although they can't give ask, consent. I think we asked the inanimate object in that one, which there's a couple of tree stumps out there that would like to let their story be told. Seven months later, 16 June 1964, 12-year-old Keith Bennett vanished on his way to his grandmother's house during the early evening. Hindley lured him into her mini pickup, which Brady was sitting in the back of, by asking for the boy's help loading some boxes. She drove to a lay-by. Who knows what a lay-by is? Uh, it's the, um, the part of the female's vagina on the outside. <laughs> uh, it's actually like a shoulder, the road's shoulder. Oh, okay. You know, the little, the little, you can just oh. park by the side of the road there. Like the outside of a road. Like the road is kind of the vaginal canal. Right. And the, the right. Uh, parts <laughs> on the outside are the lay-by. The lay-by, yes. Yeah. He, she drove to a lay-by on Saddleworth Moor, and Brady went off with Bennett. So is Bennett, Bennett's another uh, young boy. Keith Bennett, yeah, 12, 12, years, 12 old. years old. Okay. After about 30 minutes, Brady reappeared alone and carrying a spade. When Hindley asked how he had killed Bennett, Brady said that he had sexually assaulted the boy and strangled him with a piece of string. So, so far, Hindley has not actually participated in any of the murders. She has merely been the instrument by which the murders have been made possible. That certainly seems to be the case. All right, okay, all right. Six months later, uh, Boxing Day, 1964. For our American friends, that's the day after Christmas. Brady and Hindley prowled a, f- a fairground and noticed 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey standing beside one of the rides. They asked her to help carrying some packages to their car and then to their home. Once inside the house, Downey was undressed, gagged, and forced to pose for photographs before being raped and fatally strangled with a piece of string. Hindley maintained that she went to draw a bath for the child and found the girl dead when she returned. The following morning, Brady and Hindley drove with Downey's body to Saddleworth Moor, where she was buried naked with her clothes at her feet in a shallow grave. All right, so we're up to uh, four bodies now, all between the age of 10 and 14. Ten months later, Mm -hmm. Hindley drove Brady to Manchester Central Railway Station. She waited in the car while Brady invited 17-year-old apprentice engineer Edward Evans to his home. After Brady, Hindley, and Evans had driven back home and relaxed over a bottle of wine, mm-hmm. Brady sent Hindley to fetch her 17-year-old brother-in-law, David Smith. This is the husband of her younger sister, Maureen. Okay. okay. So her brother-in-law is, is 17 and married to her younger sister. Throughout the previous year, Brady had been cultivating a friendship with Smith, who had become in awe, quote-unquote, of the older man. Okay. Once Brady started struggling with Evans, Hindley shouted at Smith to go help, and he entered the room to find Brady repeatedly striking Evans with the flat of an axe. That is not something you necessarily want to walk into. Like, you have to be pretty sure that you're going to get this guy on side with you when you invite him to participate in the murder, not by talking about it beforehand, but by just saying, hey, go into that room, and then you walk in on a murder being committed. Well, I think there was some discussion of what was going to happen. Okay. So I think uh, Smith... He'd been a little bit prepped. Knew. Yeah, he had been prepped. Because there was a whole thing where I'm going to signal you, and you come into the house at a certain time. Right. Okay. And... uh, but uh, I'll give you a quote uh-huh. 
from Smith about the encounter. When I ran in, I just stood inside the living room and I saw a young lad. He was laying with his head and shoulders on the couch and his legs were on the floor. He was facing upwards. Ian was standing over him, facing him with his legs on either side of the young lad's legs. The lad was still screaming. Ian had a hatchet in his hand. He was holding it above his head and hit the lad on the left side of his head with a hatchet. I heard the blow. It was a terrible, hard blow. It sounded horrible. Yeah, Yeah, I would imagine the sound of a hatchet hitting a skull while somebody's screaming. That would be chilling, I think Mm -hmm. might be a word to describe it. That would be a good word. Mm -hmm. He watched as Brady then throttled Evans with the length of electrical cord. Evans' body was too heavy for Smith to carry to the car on his own. Brady had sprained his ankle in the struggle, so they wrapped it in plastic sheeting and put it in the spare bedroom. Smith agreed to meet Brady the following evening to dispose of Evans' body, but after returning home, he woke his wife and told her what he had seen, and the police were called. That's actually kind of clever. You've got this murderous fucking psycho right in front of you, and he's like, help me get rid of this body tomorrow. Yeah. Totally will. Goes home. Uh, yeah, that fucking crazy guy just killed people. So Let's call they the cops. prepped him on the murder. Yeah. Said, hey, come on over. We're going to do something. You should be part of it. And then he went and back and said, yeah. Uh, yeah, w- this just happened. and This is horrible. Wait a minute. David Smith was 17. Yeah. And he went home and told his wife. Yes. Yeah. Okay. 1963. It's probably more like 1965. Yeah, yeah. Still. So shortly after, police searched the Brady residence and discovered Evans' trussed-up body. Mm-hmm. Hindley was not arrested with Brady, but she demanded to go with him to the police station, accompanied by her dog, Puppet, to which the police agreed. Oh, okay. Hindley was questioned about the events surrounding Evans' death, but she refused to make any statement beyond claiming that it had been an accident. With no evidence of Hindley's involvement, she was allowed to go home. This is a uh, this is the Carla Hamolka of the 1960s England, mm-hmm. where the police don't really because she's a woman, they don't really believe that she was all that terribly culpable in the whole crime at first blush. Smith told police that Brady and Hindley had hidden evidence in two suitcases stored in a left luggage office somewhere in Manchester. Police found the left luggage ticket in the back of Hindley's prayer book. Inside one of the cases were nine pornographic photographs taken of Leslie Ann Downey, naked and with a scarf tied across her mouth, and a 13-minute audio tape recording of her screaming and pleading for help. Damn it. Well, you know, here's the thing, though. Mm. I am happy that they took this stuff in the commission of these crimes because I'm sure it went a long way to helping convict them. So, silver lining. Silver lining. A large collection of photographs was discovered in the house, many of which seemed to have been taken on Saddleworth Moor. 150 officers were drafted to search the moor, looking for locations that matched the photographs. Initially, the search was concentrated along the A628 road near Woodhead, but a close neighbor, 11-year-old Patricia Hodges, was able to point out their favorite sites. Hodges accompanied the two on their trips to Saddleworth Moor to collect peat, something that many householders did to improve the soil in their gardens. Okay. Right. So they befriended an 11-year-old girl in the neighborhood. To take her to the spots where they could bury the bodies. And they, okay. Or at least show their favorite spots that they knew. Yeah. Probably priming her to be killed at some point in time down the road. Well, I think that... um, They certainly made a pretty bad choice in criminal co-conspirator in this Smith guy because he's pretty much given up the farm. Yeah. He gave up the, the, you know, the hidden evidence. He gave up the actual crime that had just been committed. Right. Mm-hmm. Not Although, a good judge of character. Very evil. Oh, evidently, evilness clouds your judgment. Although it could be that he's just, like, super dumb and that it was his wife that finally smartened him up, you know? Right. 
Okay, uh, where were you, honey? Oh, uh, I was helping, uh, you know, uh, them with uh, Brady and Hindley killing this uh, guy in the house. We're going to go back tomorrow and get, help him get rid of the body. Oh, yeah. You She's like, what? no, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't. You're going to, you'll go to prison, you idiot. Call the cops. <laughs> oh, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. I should totally do that. <laughs> that, that is a that is a definite possibility. It's totally actually. the way it could work. <laughs> so police found an arm bone sticking out of the peat, later identified as that of Leslie Ann Downey. Days later, they found the badly decomposed body of John Kilbride, a name which corresponded to evidence they found in the Brady home. Mm-hmm. Brady was charged with the murders of Edward Evans, John Kilbride, and Leslie Ann Downey, and Hindley with the murders of Edward Evans and, and Leslie Ann Downey, as well as with harboring Brady in the knowledge that he had killed John Kilbride. Many of the photographs taken by Brady and Hindley on the moor featured Hindley's dog Puppet, sometimes as a puppy. Detectives arranged for the animal to be examined by a veterinary surgeon determined to determine its age, from which they could date when the pictures were taken. Right? Couldn't they oh, just okay. couldn't they just check the metadata on their digital photos? Oh, oh wait, <laughs> this would have been like the worst Facebook album of all time, oh, right? God, like, yeah. hey, look at how cute my puppy is out on the moor next to a freshly. Doug Grave. The examination involved an analysis of the dog's teeth, which required a general as- anesthetic from which Puppet did not recover. Oh. As he suffered from an undiagnosed kidney complaint. Oh, <laughs> Puppet, you. On hearing the news of her dog's death, Henley became furious and accused the police of murdering Puppet, one of the few occasions detectives witnessed any emotional response from her. In a letter to her mother shortly afterwards, Henley wrote, I feel as though my heart's been torn to pieces. I don't think anything could hurt me more than this. The only consolation is that some moron might have got hold of Puppet and hurt him. Uh-huh. I love that this, like, you know, unbridled remorse with respect to her puppy, but not about the children that yeah. they had been raping and murdering for well, the last Well, they're not her years. children, right? That's what it seems to be. Like, none of them have time to bond. Oh, yeah. It was... Uh, really. So if, they'd, if she'd kept them in a crate under her bed for, like, six months while they potty trained you know, maybe then uh you know they might have uh, weathered the storm uh moving on to the trial brady and Hindley pleaded not guilty to the charges against them although brady admitted to hitting evans with an axe he did not admit to killing him arguing that the pathologist in his report had stated that evans death was accelerated by strangulation under cross-examination by the prosecuting counsel all brady would admit was that i hit evans with an axe if he died from axe blows i killed him Hmm. Hindley denied any knowledge that the photographs of Saddleworth Moore found by police had been taken near the graves of their victims. The tape recording of Leslie Ann Downey, on which the voices of Brady and Hindley were clearly audible, Mm -hmm. was played in open court. Hindley admitted that her attitude towards the child was brusque and cruel, Uh but claimed that was only because she was afraid that someone might hear Downey screaming. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Wow. Said... So she, if Downey hadn't been screaming so much... She would have been she, nicer. She would have been nicer on the tape. Yes. Before they murdered her. Hindley claimed that when Downey was being undressed, she was herself downstairs. When the pornographic photographs were taken, she was looking out the window. And that when the mm-hmm. child was being strangled, she was running a bath. Right. Okay. So but, during all the actual getting your hands dirty... So mm-hmm. her defense was, it wasn't me. Yeah. No, her defense was, was I was in another room when I knew exactly what was happening. Yes, exactly. Well, I knew what it was. That's her defense. That's her defense. That's that's the best she could come up with as far as the whole, hey, don't send me to jail away for for the rest of my natural life. After a little over two hours, the jury found Brady guilty of all three murders and Hindley Hindley guilty of the murders of Downey and Evans. 
Brady was sentenced to three concurrent life sentences, and Hindley was given two, plus a concurrent seven-year term for harboring Brady in the knowledge that he had murdered John Kilbride. Mm -hmm. And then, years later, Mm -hmm. in 1985... So 20 years later. Brady confessed that he had also been responsible for the murders of Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett, something that police already suspected, since it happened around the same time and everything. Right, yeah. Same time, same MO, same age, same blah 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 blah. Winnie Johnson, Keith Bennett's mother wrote a letter to Hindley, begging to know what had happened to her son, a letter that Hindley seemed to be genuinely moved by. It read, or it ended, I'm a simple woman. I work in the kitchens of Christie's Hospital. It has taken me five weeks' labor to write this letter because it is so important to me that it is understood by you for what it is, a plea for help. Please, Miss Hindley, help me. Although she refused to admit any involvement in the killings, she agreed to help police to identify spots that she had visited with Brady. The police superintendent said that he felt quite cynical mm-hmm. about Hindley's motivation in helping the police. Although the letter from Winnie Johnson may have played a part, he believed that Hindley's real concern was that Brady might decide to cooperate with the police and wanted to make certain that she and not Brady was the one to gain whatever benefit there may have been in terms of public approval. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She made a formal confession in 1987 admitting her involvement in all five murders. The tape recording of her statement was over 17 hours long. Superintendent Topping described it as a very well-worked-out performance in which she told me just as much as she wanted me to know and no more. Uh Mm. Although 17 hours, that's... If that's just... A lot of talking. That's a lot of talking. It was the pauses. Yeah. Oh, lots of pauses. (laughs) Oh, really? You think she's just like a... uh... (laughs) That's right. That's bad podcast recording technique, (laughs) by the way. Miss Hindley. (laughs) He also commented that he was struck by the fact that she was never there when the killings took place. She was in the car. She was over a hill. She was in the bathroom, and even in the case of Evan's murder, in the kitchen. Except for the the point in time where a little girl is screaming for help, and she's her voice is heard on a recording in the yeah. same room with her, saying "Shut up, shut up," or whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. being brusque and cruel. Yeah, brusque and cruel. Uh-huh. Police told Brady of Hindley's confession, at which he first refused to believe. Once presented with some of the details that Hindley had provided, Brady decided that he too was prepared to confess, mm-hmm. but on one condition that immediately afterwards he be given the means to commit suicide, a request that was impossible for the authorities to comply with. (laughs) Excellent. Okay, I'll tell you, but you have to let me kill myself after. No. (laughs) With Hindley's advice and after more than 100 days of searching, police found Reed's body. That is not very good advice. It was over here 100 days later. Found it! (laughs) The part that I haven't included... Is they've taken her out a couple times. There was a media. There was a media fanfare. There was yeah. excessive security. She's like, uh, "Oh, I'm confused" and stuff like that. Right. So she was milking it. Seems to be that way. Yeah. Like, Either that, or she generally didn't know. Hey, or she'd been in jail for 23 years, and yeah. a little bit of fresh air was probably. Yeah. You know, she wanted <laughs> to like drag it out as long as she possibly could. Keith Bennett's body remains undiscovered. Keith's mother made repeated calls for Brady to reveal the location of his grave. She died uh, last year, I think it was, at age 78 without knowing where her son's remains are. Mm -hmm. Following his conviction, Brady spent 19 years in mainstream prisons before being diagnosed as a psychopath in November 1985 and sent to the high-security Ashworth Psychiatric Hospital in Sefton. He has made it clear that he never wants to be released and was repeatedly asked that he be allowed to die. You know, I mean, maybe if he'd like thought of that before he started killing other people, yeah, then maybe that yeah. was the time to actually sort of like put that into effect. Hindley made several appeals against her life sentence, claiming that she was a reformed woman and no longer a danger to society, but she was never released. Uh, I got a quote from her. 
I ought to have been hanged. I deserved it. My crime was worse than Brady's because I enticed the children, and they never would have entered the car without my role. I've always regarded myself as worse than Brady. <laughs> Except for the fact that she kind of deflected her uh, culpability at like every possible turn yeah. mm-hmm. when, you know, probably wasn't so, you know, uh, blameless as she would like everybody to believe. She died in 2002, age 60, from bronchial pneumonia caused by heart disease. Heart disease, the great equalizer. Way to go. <laughs> Vigilante heart disease. Yeah. You know what? That's going to be uh, the nickname of like the next Vin Diesel character. I'm heart disease. Ooh. I get everybody in the end. What was that movie with all the, the, the pills, the, the pills the and the, the animated movie that was partly animated with all the pills and the bacteria and whatnot? Osmosis Jones. Osmosis oh, Jones. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's the character from that movie. Heart disease. I'm the world's number one killer. In the news. Ian Brady has lost his legal bid to be transferred from a psychiatric hospital back to prison. Good. Oh, wait. So hold on. So in 1985, they say, you're too crazy for prison. And he probably was like, yeah, I'm, I'm freaking uh, the dude from One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. Woohoo! Mental hospital. I'm out of prison. Yahoo! Yeah. And now he's like, oh, no. This place sucks. I want to go people, back to prison. Back these to prison. people are crazy. <laughs> he wanted a tribunal to approve a move to a Scottish prison, but Ashworth Hospital said he had chronic mental illness and needed continued care at the Merseyside Top Security Facility. Judge Robert Atherton, who headed the three-person mental health tribunal at Ashworth, said, The tribunal has concluded that Mr. Ian Stewart Brady continues to suffer from a mental disorder for which his health and safety, and for the protection of other persons, he should receive treatment in hospital. Mr. Brady suffers from a severe personality disorder and a mental illness which still require high-quality care. His condition is chronic and will require the support for the foreseeable future. (laughs) I do I do like the uh, frafrah at the end of it all. Yeah, it was yeah. odd that you wrote it down into the notes. Asked if the tribunal, which was held in public at Brady's request, may have exacerbated the illness, Dr. Fearnley said, I think the difficulty with an individual such as Ian Brady's is that he has a complex mental disorder and for many years has been able to publicize his concerns. However, we see this as part of an overall problem which our experts are looking into and will continue to provide expert care. There's only one cure for Ian Brady, and that's, you know, a lethal injection. Well, Ian Brady has been on a hunger strike since 1999. Wow. And appeared at the tribunal with his feeding tube in place. Ah, nice. The tribunal also heard that he eats some food on most days. (laughs) Okay, so it's not much of a hunger strike. It's a hungry strike. You know what? You know what really actually? (laughs) It is. (laughs) You know what? (laughs) You know, actually, it seems like this guy's problem is it's not that he murders people or he, you know, wants to not be known as a psychopath or he's an egomaniac or anything like this. He just has low impulse control, right? Oh, maybe. He's yeah. like, oh, I'm on a hunger strike. Nom, 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 nom. Ah, oh, I'm not. Well, Mars to- bar. Uh, <laughs> intermission. Yeah. Uh, I'm not supposed to kill children. Oh, well, but that one looks pretty killable. (laughs) Brady gave evidence for more than four hours at the tribunal, which sat at Ashworth Psychiatric Hospital. It was the first time he had spoken in public for 47 years. Brady had told the tribunal he used method acting to trick doctors into classing him as insane so he could be transferred from prison to hospital. That's just what a crazy person would say. Method Mm -hmm. acting. Yeah. Uh 
the school of method acting should really get this out yeah, there. Exactly. I mean, that this guy actually could fool a room full of professionals using their method. I mean, that's good press, yeah, right? No is... such thing as bad press. <laughs> no he... such thing. But that's he... what they always say. But he said. Torn, do they say that or do they not I say that? I have heard that said uh-huh. a number of times. They, those people having said that. Mm-hmm. But he said he now wanted to leave Ashworth because he hated it, and the regime has changed to a penal warehouse. Penile. Oh. Uh, no, penal <laughs> warehouse. Well, listen, if the uh, child and young girl rapist and murderer is having a bad time, we should do what we can to make his life. Oh, fuck that guy. Like, I, I think if this place has actually become a penile warehouse, they should hopefully, they're planning on storing all these penises in his ass. That that would be his punishment. That he the should, penile warehouse? Yeah, that he he himself, Ian butt- Brady, becomes a, a penile, penile warehouse. warehouse. <laughs> Maybe that's why he wanted a prison in the first place. And we're we're not trying to uh we're not trying to lighten uh rape. Like these are actually just spare penises lying around. Yeah, exactly. Like not we're not talking about forcible uh, sodomy. We're just like we gotta put this penis somewhere. Yeah. Let's put it in that guy. Hey, he said it, I didn't. It's in his own words. I yeah. Mm-hmm. The tribunal I'm just suggesting a locale, right? Yeah. The, tri- the tribunal heard from Brady's lawyer that Brady had a had a severe personality disorder, but was not mentally ill. Oh, okay. And could be treated in prison rather than hospital. During his evidence, Brady refused to answer a question from his own lawyer about whether he intended to take his own life if he was declared fit to return to prison. Good work, own lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I get the feeling that this lawyer was like, you know, a public defender of some kind or another, that he wasn't really maybe putting his whole heart and soul yeah. into the Ian Brady. Could have been a very clever thing to do, actually, now that I think about it. Like, oh, man, we might get this guy off. Uh, oh, uh, and Mr. Brady, of course, uh, <laughs> just let the court know that, of course, you're not going to take your own life if you we let you go into prison, right? Um. <laughs> I'm a no comment. No comment. <laughs> oh, damn, I probably shouldn't have asked that. Uh-huh. In the pop culture, a 1977 BBC television debate discussed arguments for and against Myra Hindley's release with contributions from the parents of some of the murdered children. The oh, good lord. Good lord. So this is like like basically a BBC character hearing like a parole hearing or something. Should we let the person who uh, was responsible for helping somebody else rape and murder your children out of jail? Uh, Discuss. You know what this is? This is probably just a, a clever ruse to get all the relatives of these murdered children in a room and have one of them say, oh, yeah, I'm okay with it, and then arrest them. <laughs> Because that person is a menace to society. I thought you were going to go to an into uh, Star Trek Into Darkness thing where Brady would show up in a, some kind of hover vehicle outside and shoot everybody inside. Oh, oh good Lord. No, it wasn't just that. That's horrible. Okay. The case has been dramatized on television twice. In See No Evil, The Moore's Murders, which I watched parts of, mm-hmm. and Longford. I don't know why it's called Longford. Tried to watch that. Uh, didn't work out so good. <laughs> uh, internet stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. In 2001, Brady wrote The Gates of Janus, which was published by Feral House, an underground U.S. publisher. The book, Brady's analysis of serial murder and specific serial killers, sparked outrage when announced in Britain. 
Is this the gates of Janus, like J-A-N-I-C-E, or Janus is in the Roman god J-A-N-U-S? The latter. Ah, I see. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Not Janus first, Joplin the, biography. The, the first title, I was, I was a little confused. It gets three and a half stars out of five on Amazon.com. To understand human character, one must first explore the depraved reaches of human consciousness. Hmm. I suppose in, technically that's true. He's got more insight than any yeah. doctor out there. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually watched an ITV documentary on these two. The only real thing I want to point out about it is it's kind of like this podcast talking about it, except that they had some pictures going along and they took a lot longer to get to the data. Uh, It wasn't quite like a modern day documentary where they'll just spend all their time setting up questions that they might answer eventually Mm -hmm. and then cutting to a break and then saying, before the break, we asked, did they kill these kids? Mm -hmm. Let's take a look. And then going over. It wasn't that bad. But it really felt like they had very little actual stuff to talk about. Right. Uh, and they were just trying to pad it and fill out their entire, what, 45 minutes. I'm discontented with home that are rented, so I have invented my own. Darling, this place is a lover's oasis where life's weary chases are known. saving the world. How about the greatest inventor who ever lived? 
Nikola Tesla, the inventor of the 20th century, battles the most horrifying creatures of nightmare in Tesla vs. Cthulhu, a film from Allied Alchemy Studios. Join our Kickstarter and pick your team at teslavscthulhu.com. Pop quiz. Oh, okay. Pop quiz about killers. Evil duos? Okay. Uh, What's a baby farmer? Oh, uh, uh, what do you have to plant to grow babies? Um, uh, I don't know. Well, you water, with, you water it with baby oil. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There you go, and and you and you keep the insects off with baby powder, uh-huh. or maybe maybe that's what you do is you grow them and then grind them into baby powder. Is that what it is? You grow babies, you dry them out, you grind them into baby powder, and you sell it to keep other babies <laughs> from getting diaper rash. Yeah, uh, I'm actually going to guess that it's about people who take in uh, babies in order to get government assistance because they're foster kids, but then just f- leave them alone and let them die or something. That sounds like an actual answer. I don't work well under pressure. <laughs> yeah. I don't work well under pressure. I, it's hard to come back from an actual answer that sounds probably right. It's a child minder uh-huh. who looked after babies for a weekly fee. Uh, weekly, okay. Until mm-hmm. the mother came to take the child away or until they found uh, suitable parents for babies uh, up for adoption. So, so the government did pay these people to look after children. So they are foster parents. They're, it's a it's a term, for, an early term for foster parents. Except for the government had nothing to do with it. Oh, oh. So who? Why who would they do them? this? Uh, the mother. Oh, okay. So they had to like go off and do a job somewhere yeah. else or something. Often because uh, the children were born out of wedlock. Okay. And back in the 1800s, mm-hmm. which is when we'll be talking about uh, these characters that we're going to meet. Discuss now. Did <laughs> they, so the mother would give the baby away. Yeah. These people would take care of it for a while. And then the mother would adopt it so that they wouldn't have a baby it out of wedlock? usually taken back as a niece or a nephew. Yeah. Uh, there okay. you go. So this because is of too... the whole stupid sanctity of marriage bullshit right. that so, everyone so this, this was yeah. all like This is basically, this is baby laundering. Right, like you know, gangsters money launder in order to like take their illegitimate money and make it seem legitimate. Yeah, this is to take your illegitimate child and make it seem legitimate. Kevin, I'm not often a huge fan of yours, but this is fantastic. We need to change it from baby farmer to baby laundering. laundering. Yeah, laundering. So in the late 1800s in Sydney, Australia, Mm -hmm. John and Sarah Macon were baby farmers. Okay. Commonly, John answered an advertisement, negotiated payment of between three and five pounds, and signed papers exonerating the putative father from further responsibility. Mm -hmm. The mortality rate for babies separated from their mothers was so high that public institutions were reluctant to admit them. Oh, okay, because just infant mortality back in the late 1800s in Australia was not good. Yeah. So Macon, either from fear of destitution or recklessly accepted babies whom other carers avoided. Okay, so they were, okay. they were the place that you would go. You'd go to these people if you had nowhere else to take them. Like no, everybody else had yeah. turned you away. Yeah. The family, the Macon family, moved frequently, sometimes owing rent. So these are just super poor people doing like whatever they can to get whatever money right. they can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, the most important victim in this case was Amber Murray. Amber Murray was a young woman who had given birth to her son out of wedlock, and after three months, she was finding it difficult to juggle work and a baby on her own. Mm -hmm. She placed an ad looking for a kind person to take charge of her baby boy, Horace Murray, for a small fee. A Mr. J. Hill wrote to Miss Murray and offered to adopt the baby into his family for a meager six pounds. 
Mr. Hill told Miss Murray that his wife had lost a baby boy herself recently and was in a very melancholy state. He believed little Horace would be a perfect addition to his loving and caring family. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's probably true, knowing that this is on Caustic Soda, that she did lose a baby boy recently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Amber took her child to the Georgia Street, Sydney address. At the door, Amber was greeted by John Macon, who Miss Murray believed was Mr. Hill, and his two teenage, teenage daughters. Miss Murray paid the Macons uh, the small amount of money she had and was given a receipt in the name of Macon's alias, Mr. J. Hill. Amber Murray didn't find it unusual that there were five or six other babies in the house because the Macons explained they were just minding them for friends for a short time. Hmm. His mother left little Horace with the Macons after they had made a deal that she would pay the money each week on the proviso that she'd be able to visit little Horace from time to time, and it was agreed. So John Macon called in each week to collect money from Amber. But every time she asked to see her boy, she was put off with some excuse. Mm. Right. Changing diapers or uh, he's... Uh, he's at the circus. He's off to... He's, go, he's gone to war or something, right? <laughs> right? You know, he's a little patriot. <laughs> the little patriot. Yeah. One day when John Macon was collecting the premium, he told Amber that the Macons were moving from Redfern to Hurstville, well out in the western suburbs of Sydney. And Hurstville? Would, yeah. <laughs> And he would forward her the address. Hey, maybe we have some listeners. I, in Hertz, I love Hertz, you. I'm Hertz just Bill. making a joke. Hertz Bill. Hertz <laughs> and he would forward her the address after they had settled in, in about six weeks' time. In the meantime, he still called each week to collect 10 shillings. That sounds like money. But the, <laughs> as far as I know, yeah. Mm-hmm. But the Macons didn't move to the western suburbs. Instead, they took a house in nearby McDonald Town and moved clandestinely or clandestinely. Clandestinely. In the dead of night or the diad of nigget. <laughs> The Macons moved more than fifteen times in a period of twenty years. It sounds it's, like it's like it's like moving like basically like a college student yeah. every eight months. Yep. Or over a year. So in October eighteen ninety two, a drainer was digging in the soft earth to clear an underground drain in the backyard of a house in McDonald Town when he found the cause of the blockage. Oh boy. Mm-hmm. Two bundles of foul smelling baby clothing. He removed the material and found the decomposing remains of two babies. Wow. Oh, okay. So what, they flushed him down the toilet? He called the police, and they uncovered the putrefying corpses of another five infants in various parts of the backyard. Holy crap. Okay. Instantly, suspicion was well, laid on the previous occupants, the Macons. But babies do die. Like you, you yep. said earlier on in this story, yep. that infant mortality amongst these kinds of children yep. are very, very high. The Macons could just be terribly unlucky. It's true. Always getting unhealthy babies. Well, that's seven. Yep. Two, two, two clogging the drain, and then five more in various parts in the backyard. Ooh, maybe That's those lot. two babies that were clogging the drain tried to get out great escape style. Digging a tunnel? Digging a towards tunnel. Towards the drain? Yes. Oh, uh-huh. interesting. Yeah? And then yeah. the so tunnel collapsed. Fault. Yeah. Yeah, there were like seven babies in the tunnel trying to get out of the house. That's right. And then it just collapsed. Yeah. Precisely. That could have happened. Could have happened. The great baby escape. The great baby escape. Mm-hmm. Soon after the discoveries... The Macon's other previous residence, George Street, was also excavated. Three babies were uncovered in the yard. That's ten. Uh, Police exhumed remains from the backyards of 11 homes that the Macons had occupied since 1890. A total of 12 dead infant bodies were recovered, though some sources count 13. Okay. Uh-huh. Now, it's hard to tell. They're so decomposed and mixed together. Yeah. Is this three or is this two? Just Let's mm, just call it two. The, well, we found the, the skeletons of 13, but we only found the heads of 12. So right, yeah. What, so what do we do, do here? Uh, one of those babies was uh, two-headed. 
In the 1890s, birth survival rate was indeed low, as you said, and so far there was no reason to believe the babies had been murdered. With three women of childbearing age in the house, it was possible that the babies had been uh, their own. Uh, so well, the DNA mo- test that shit. You can figure that <laughs> out right away. Yeah, Get on it, good. Scotland Yard. Jesus, what a bunch of backwards the hicks down there in Australia. So at the moment, the only crime had been concealment of death. Okay. Both John and Sarah Macon were arrested along with their two daughters. The four of them remained in prison while autopsies and inquests were held into the deaths of the seven babies. Mm-hmm. The decomposition of all but two of the babies made it difficult to establish identities or cause of death. However, sources claim that the babies were pierced through the heart with knitting needles when they were no longer needed. Ah. Uh, wow. Or maybe they were yeah. just trying to knit them a sweater, but, like, right on them. Oh, yeah. And then it's just to save time. Just to save time of, like, actually, like, well, or sizing. Like, sizing for babies, they change sizes so quickly. That's true. They it's got very bigger difficult. You got to. Or... So they were just saving a step. Or. The babies died naturally, and they wanted to preserve them like they would their insect collection, so they just stuck them through with knitting needles to their presentation case. Right. And then wised up later and went, oh, this is horrible. we got to bury them in the backyard. I I thought you were going to say that the babies died naturally, and then they just needed somewhere to keep their knitting needles. (laughs) Oh, right. So you just stick them in the dead baby. Right, yeah, of course. Until uses they uses for a dead baby. I think it's in that book. I think it probably is. And then you can only do it for as long as they're non-decomposed enough. And right. then they decompose past. Just, you just can't past stick them Where in your, your needles are no longer staying upright. You just bury them in the <laughs> backyard. there's just so many holes in them. That's right. That they're just all too wide and everything. Oh, yeah. we are horrible people. <laughs> Two of the babies, however, could be identified. One of them was indeed Horace Murray. The other was the baby of Horace Bottomley and Minnie Davis. A lot of two horses horses in this story. Yeah, and it's H O R A C E Horace, not H O R U S, the Egyptian falcon god. (laughs) Yeah, don't be confused. He probably would have had a problem with getting stabbed in the heart with a knitting needle. Maybe he would just rise from the dead Mm -hmm. later and exact his vengeance. (laughs) It seemed relatively unlikely that you would end up with two Horaces in a single story in such close proximity to one another, but. Maybe it was like, uh, you know, the um, the Mike of the day. So Bottomley and Davis had made weekly payments and visited every Saturday night uh, to the Makins, obviously. Mm-hmm. They were quite satisfied, quote unquote, with their baby's treatment. When the child had fallen ill, Macon sent Bottomley a telegram and the baby was taken to a doctor. The parents saw the body beautifully laid out and accepted Macon's offer to arrange burial. Mm-hmm. Further inquests were held into the deaths of four more of the infants, one of whom was Horace Murray, the illegitimate son of Amber Murray. Uh, so the important part of that is two days after uh, Horace, little Horace, was received, they moved for Burren Street. Okay. So anyway, let's move on to the trial. Amber Murray and three other grieving mothers identified clothing that had been pawned by Sarah Macon as belonging to their babies. Oh, so not only did they kill their babies, they actually sold their clothes? Yes. Well, if you're going to do it for financial gain, you might as well squeeze every last baby st- Blooded drop out of the stone. Shit like this is why I'm okay with welfare. Another couple testified that they delivered their illegitimate child to the Makins and gave them a considerable upfront upfront payment, agreeing on 10 shillings a week until they could take the baby back after they had sorted their affairs out. Mm -hmm. Within days, the baby had died, and the grieving parents gave the Makins two pounds toward the funeral, which they did not attend. Well, and (laughs) the baby ended up buried in their backyard, so it probably would have been a small service. Hmm. I'm not sure about that. On the witness stand, the Makins' lies were shredded. 
by the prosecution shredded. Okay. Time and again, when they denied any knowledge of keeping any babies, of murdering babies, or taking weekly premiums from parents, they were caught up in their own webs of deceit until even their own children chose to go against them. Well, that's that's rats from a sinking ship, isn't right. it? Like, that's pretty much every last making for themselves. Once like, you get into a court of law, it's kind of hard to use the it wasn't me defense. Yeah. Well, unless you're one of the kids, then you're like, well, I can use the it was them defense. Yeah. 16-year-old Clarice took the stand and testified against her parents by identifying clothing found on one of the dead babies as clothing she had seen in her mother's possession. Daisy testified that only two baby girls accompanied them when they moved from Redfern to McDonald Town, inferring that little Horace Murray had been murdered and buried at Redfern. Within two days of taking them in. Yeah. So relatively, if it goes in a relatively healthy baby, chances of it dying within 48 hours, pretty slim. As he sentenced John and Sarah Macon to death by hanging, Justice Stephen looked at the pair in the dock and in reference to baby Horace Murray said, You took money from the mother of this child. You beguiled her with promises which you never meant to perform and which you never did perform, having determined on the death of the child. You deceived her as to your address and you endeavoured to make it utterly fruitless that any search should be made. And finally, in order to make detection impossible, as you thought, having bereft it of life, you buried this child in your yard as you would the carcass of a dog. You were engaged in baby farming in its worst aspect. Three yards of houses in which you lived testify with that ghastly evidence of these bodies that you were carried on this nefarious, this hellish business... I'm destroying the lives of these infants for the sake of monetary gain. Are you sure he didn't say this Horace business? Hmm. Might so have been. Got a little more Horace in there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The judge then passed the death sentence. This is way back in the day when death sentences were like carried out lickety split. Too. Yeah. People get death sentences and like a week and a half later, they're like dancing at the end of a rope. After two appeals were dismissed, John Mackin went to his death on the gallows. Sarah Macon won her reprieve and was sentenced to life imprisonment with hard labor. I'll take the gallows. Mm-hmm. Hard labor. <laughs> she was released in 1911. Oh, After snap. serving 19 years behind bars and faded into obscurity. None of the making children had a conviction recorded against them. Oh, I, I wonder if they years. wanted to live normal lives mm-hmm. or just got better at hiding it. In the pop culture. All right. The story of Amber Murray and, and the Macon family inspired the 2008 Australian theater production The Hat Pin, which played in Sydney and in New York City. In 2009, it was nominated for three Sydney Theatre Awards and won one for Best Actress. That means one of two things. Either this play was really good, or there aren't a whole heck of a lot of plays in Sydney. Hmm. One of our Australian listeners should, uh, who's seen it should drop us a line at causticsodapodcast.com. Oh, yeah. Go into the comments section and tell us how it was. It was only a few years ago. Mm-hmm. In August 2009, the Macon story was de- televised in the Discovery Channel documentary series Deadly Women. Aha. I watched this episode. Oh, oh, yeah? It was fine. It was in the third season episode, Blood for Money, which featured reenactions, reenactments by actress Pip Moore as Amber Murray. Everyone knows Pip Moore, right? Nope. Mm-mm. So, who's more evil? Well, before you make your decision, here's some good things from the Makins. Oh, this is the um, this is on the positive side of the, the ledger. Positive this is, side. There's a pro yeah, and Kind of, sort of. Yeah, okay. Uh, the case of John and Sarah Macon raised awareness of the institution of baby farming and led the New South Wales Legislative Assembly to initiate the Children's Protection Act of 1892 to bring the care of orphaned and destitute children under state control. So maybe, without the Macons murdering all these babies, the general baby welfare, welfare would not be as good. 
Okay. I know it's a very thin positive. <laughs> okay. And all it cost was what? 12 babies? 12 babies. Hey, you know what they say? You got to make a new law. You might have to break a few babies. Mm. And Ian Brady says uh, he sees no point in making any kind of public apology. Instead, he expresses remorse through actions. 20 years of transcribing classical texts into Braille. Oh. Came to an end when the authorities confiscated his translation machine for fear it might be used as a weapon. He once offered to donate one of his kidneys to someone who, to someone, anyone who needed one, but was blocked from doing so. Well, you know why? Because anybody who got his kidney would become a murderer. Because that's the seat of the soul, is yeah. the kidney. If Hollywood has taught <laughs> me anything. That's where your uh, morality compass is. Yeah, if, if Hollywood has taught me anything, you know, when you get a transplant from a psychopathic killer, you become <laughs> yeah, a psychopathic killer. <laughs> It'll be the sequel to Idle Hands, yeah. Idle Hands 2, Idle Kidney. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, what is kidney? Kidney, it like cleans your blood, right? That's the liver. Kidney filters your urine. Kidney filters your urine, and we all know urine is where your evil resides. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. That's why it's yellow? <laughs> oh, sense. no, it's where your cowardice resides. Oh. Oh. Yeah, there goes that theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to Colin Wilson, it was because these attempts to express remorse were thrown back at him that he began to contemplate suicide. That's all I got for the positive spin on those guys. Oh, you didn't have a positive spin for Myra Hindley. Well, she, oh, I guess I do because when she was in she prison, loved her dog. she felt well. She did love her dog. Uh huh. And uh, when she was in prison, she uh, made some friends. She fell in love with, I believe, it was a one of the guards. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. Did the guard know about it? Yes. <laughs> okay. I believe it was a consensual relationship. All right. And when she died, uh, one of her girlfriends spread her ashes somewhere. <laughs> Let's say the Moors, because that ties everything together. Yeah, <laughs> closes the circle. Yeah, whether it's true or not, that's where we're putting the film. We're doing it in the film. Uh-huh. Exactly. Uh, she, fell, she fell in love with one of the guards where she was being housed? Really? Yep. Truly? Yeah. Here's what I want to know. If you're the guard, right? Myra Hindley, I get why she would want to get together with a guard. If you're the guard... I mean, imagine the conversation about your exes, right? <laughs> yeah. You always have that conversation when you get in with somebody new? You talk about their exes a little bit? That would be awkward. <laughs> I'm gonna. Well, maybe she had a hard time getting dates, so I'll become a prison officer at a women's prison. A, a captive audience, that's for sure. Yeah. Right? yeah. Get the pick of the litter. So, and you got a lot of time to get used to that story. Yeah. Right? You know, you see her every day yeah. and you're like, yeah, that did suck, but she seems okay now. And she keeps giving me the eye. <laughs> now, that he's away from, now that she's away from Ian Brady. Mm-hmm. But really, that just tells me that prison guards need to have a strong social life outside of their jobs no so that this shit does shit. not happen. Uh, I'm going to go, I got to say Brady. Brady was the more evil. Brady was the most evil of them all? Well, the the Macons were kind of doing it for money, right? Like they yeah. they were just like taking the babies goal, in. They were goal-oriented killers. Yeah, like it seems, I get the feeling they weren't really doing it for fun. They were just kind of like, look, this sucks, but people will give us oh. money if we take their babies, but it costs money to take care of babies. Like they're certainly evil. This is certainly horrible. But... Uh, Brady was just like, yeah, I'm gonna, He's a sadist. I'm gonna rape and kill people for no reason except my own pleasure. And so, do I we? Like it. Do we, here's a question: Do we accept that all twelve or possibly thirteen of these babies were murdered? I don't know if if all twelve were right. I mean, it's true because that if they're, they're not, because if you die, have a baby die naturally, do you still bury it in the backyard anyway, just to keep? The authorities away from your operation? No, it's not keeping the authorities away from your operation. It's so you can keep collecting, keep collecting the money. weekly stipend. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Which is pretty despicable. Like, imagine what kind of a cold-hearted snake you have to be to look a mother in the eye and say, yeah. 
Hey, your baby's taking care of money, please. Well, cold Pay me snake. for killing your child. Cold-hearted snake or desperately poor person with very little care for other people. I mean, I'm not trying to you excuse have them. Utter lack of conscience to be to I be agree. able to look them in the eye like that's because. There was no they they weren't PayPaling their payment over to these people. Yeah, they had to go to their house right. and collect because yeah. they didn't want all right. these mothers to know where they lived. So yeah. You know that they're dropping in and going, right. "Hey, time for your time to pay the piper." Yeah. Right. So look somebody in the eye and then like, "Oh, how's little Horace doing?" It's like, "Oh, you know, I mean, probably making stories up." Oh, said his first words today. He's like doing this, that, right. and the other. We're loving life but again. Threw the ball in the backyard. <laughs> In that, I crumpled him into a ball and threw, threw him, him in the backyard. backyard. <laughs> <laughs> but again, the, it's for the money and not just for their own yeah. selfish, perverse pleasure. Like you, there's, a, there's, a, it was, which, which it makes was, a slight, very slight difference. They're like, so you can, you can actually understand the rationale behind their actions. Well, <laughs> whereas, whereas, whereas Hindley and Brady, it's pure sadism. I think I would break down and actually do real labor rather than kill babies to make money. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are still horrible, terribly evil people. Mm -hmm. But it's just if I have to pick one, it's the one that does it for his own fun rather than as a way to get by. But the Macons have a higher body count. Not not a higher mass amount, yeah. probably. <laughs> yeah. Not higher yeah. volume. <laughs> higher water displacement. Yeah. You know, but uh, hey. Hinley did say that she would have been nice to that girl if she just stopped screaming. <laughs> right? So maybe the Makins, it was the same thing. If these babies had just stopped screaming, they never would have killed them. It could be that the way that they were taught to make babies stop uh, screaming was to stick a needle through their hearts. Mm -hmm. I am. I think I'm going to side with Joe on the whole uh, Hinley and Brady are more evil. Right. Mm -hmm. But, uh, wow, real Real slight edge. Yeah. I think I'm going to have to agree with you both, uh, mostly because I don't like babies. <laughs> so the question of which of us is the most evil. That would be me. The answer yeah. is Torin. <laughs> do we want to do a lesser of two evils? Who would, Which would we rather die by? So the question is, would you rather be picked up by Myra Hindley as a 12-year-old, yeah. driven right. out to the moors to look for a glove, then get raped and murdered and buried by Brady in the moors. Let's since neither neither since Nuni of us have had any experience with rape, as far as I know. Yeah, that's let's true. go with the older seventeen-year-old. Ah, with an axe and uh, uh, strangulate strangulated by an electrical. Great. Okay. okay. Good point. All right. So we get picked up at the train station. Yeah. Go over for a glass of wine. And end so up, perk, we get to get a bit drunk before we're murdered. Get a little buzz on, um, but then repeated a wax to the side of the head with a hatchet. Right. Which well, the first one doesn't kill us because no. we it's, scream and flail. In fact, to the degree where we twist our attacker's ankle. Didn't they say the blunt end of a hatchet? Too? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, even better because caving the skull in as opposed to like yeah. you know uh, the actual cleaving of the skull. Right. Yeah. And then we are trussed up in a spare room wrapped in plastic for disposal later. Yeah. Or handed over as an infant by our, you know, slutty mothers. And, <laughs> slutty mothers. And, and then have a needle driven through our heart and buried in the backyard to potentially clog the plumbing and bring the law down <laughs> not on the our plugging, Not the plugging of the drain. Yes. No. Yeah. Uh, I, well, I think the obvious thing is that if we're murdered as a baby, do we even know it? 
Well, this. Or is I mean, that, do we do we even miss being alive? Well, this. I mean, this is this is, this is too it, easy. Right? As a seventeen-year-old, we'll have lived for seventeen years. I seventeen quite productive years, if I remember. He was that seventeen-year-old was an engineering apprentice. That's right. You know, so you have a lot of hope. And you got a lot of you got your future ahead of you. Which is all crushed. You know, it's all <laughs> crushed literally by yes. the blunt end of a hatchet. Yes. Oh, my hope! That was in my left quadrant of my brain. That was the first thing to go. Yeah. And uh, but you know, you had seventeen years, or you, but you're 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 murdered as an infant, right? And uh, so you really don't ever hmm. get to experience. So life. it's kind of like, uh, do you ever have? A, do, would you rather have a chance to exist as a person? And have that snuffed out or never to have existed as a person. No, because you have to actually live through the snuffing out. You are now aware of the snuffing. Right. Yeah, but right? that's life. We're all going to snu- get snuffed out. So the yeah. question is, are you happy you lived? Relatively few of us. Was- <laughs> the answer is so far, yes. Rel- as shitty as things might have been. Relatively few of us are going to get snuffed out by the blunt end of a hatchet, though. Yeah, but, well, some of us might be standing on the side of a road and get creamed by a car. Uh-huh. Uh, it's gonna. It's probably not gonna be good, no matter what it is. I mean, how many? What percentage of people get to die peacefully in their sleep? I don't know. Pretty fucking small, I would think. For me, my mm. life didn't really get going until I was like in my twenties. I yeah, even later for me. <laughs> right. So you, you that, not that I'm saying the entire years up to that were horror and terror. Uh huh. But I feel like if I lost my life at 17, was, I'd be like pissed, so pissed off. It's like, what? It was just getting rolling. Yeah. Let's be the rare example of an infant where we were self-aware for our <laughs> okay. like year yeah. that we were alive, right? Sucking on your mother's tit. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Sucking on your mother's tit. Doesn't get any better than this. Pooping in your pants, right? Other people <laughs> yeah. clean up for you. Oh, that's right. I didn't get you to know? poo in my pants when I was 17. That's right. Uh, that's right. You know? So Have someone clean it up for me? Yeah, they've been served hand. Oh, I'm sure foot. there are websites for that now. Uh huh. Craigslist ads. That yeah. gives me an idea. <laughs> There's a little snapshot into the soul of Torin right there. So you know, I mean, there's some positives and negatives. Oh, and you can take credit for uh, for causing the child welfare laws in Australia to be changed. <laughs> right. If it wasn't for my corpse. If it wasn't for think they, of all the other babies who might they, suffer. They could refer to them as the uh, as the horrors. That's the horse law. If I'm uh, fully sentient and uh, as a baby, is it also mm-hmm. like uh, all those baby movies where I can talk to other babies? Sure. That sure. baby conversation? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I don't know if I want to hear from those assholes, though. Well, yeah. but here's the thing. It's like five other <laughs> that babies. That Torn hates babies, and he is one. They're the yeah. only people he can talk to. <laughs> yeah, you, you would know, hate yourself. You're saying you would rather be murdered uh, as an adult. I, I or want, a young adult. I'll take my 17 years, yeah. They weren't terrible. Yeah, I feel like if I was a baby, I would want to be killed just because of all the other crying babies around me. <laughs> so you wouldn't, you'd be a blessing in disguise? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you guys are both falling down on the side of the uh, I think, 17-year-old yeah, engineering I student. think so. Yeah. Because right. really, it only lasts for like, I don't know, 10 minutes. It's a horrible 10 minutes. And also... Being hit in the head with the flat of an axe and being strangled with Also, I, I might be able to throat punch him and... I, I obviously you can't fight back as a baby. <laughs> no, I'm talking about uh, talking about Brady. Like, yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. I agree with your point. Because yeah, yeah. As a baby, you can't exactly, fight back. Right. Uh, here comes a ninny needle. Well, fuck. I'm taking the baby. Oh, because of those those many months of pooing your pants. I I haven't quite let go of the fact that there could have been a great baby escape, and that I might <laughs> right. have actually been the lead, the the head baby of it. Right. I might have uh, led the the charge for freedom. 
and you know ended up as a footnote in a in a uh, in a Rotorooter store, uh, Mister Rotorooter store. You're slowly smuggling dirt up from the tunnels in your diaper. Yeah, it's like why does this kid keep shitting dirt? Could this be the? <laughs> Don't let him play in the yard any longer. This could be the the caustic soda movie project we've been thinking of. We we retell. The Macon story with the babies making a great escape type uh, ending so that they actually get out. And then the, the babies go on the stand to talk about the horrible things. They all live. And their testimony is what gets that Child Protection Act going. No, no. This is the Caustic Soda, this is the Caustic Soda movie project, but it's the opposite. We remake the great escape with, with babies. babies and all the parts. That's box office gold. <laughs> they all kind of look like Charles Bronson anyway. <laughs> wet. I said wet. Wet. It's such a weird feeling to know you're alive. It's such an awful feeling. You're dying inside. And when you wake up, startled to say, I hope I don't go crazy today. It's such a bad feeling. An ominous feeling. A feeling you know that we'll be back when the week is new. And we'll have more gross facts for you. And you'll have things you want to hear about. We will too. Caustic Soda was recorded by Mike Leeson while struggling in a crocodile death roll. To comment on episodes, make donations, and for links, images, videos, and show notes, visit causticsodapodcast.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, visit us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter, at Caustic Podcast. Email us at info at causticsodapodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Soon after the discoveries, the Makins. Soon after the discoveries in the Makins, other previous. Put a comma after discoveries. Soon after the discoveries, comma.